Of course, I go by the name of the kid. Famous Swap. This here is the Tim and Sid Show. You are now tuned in. Coast to coast. Edutaining the masses. Sports entertainment. Yeah. It's about to get started. Sit back. Enjoy the show. In five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tim No Sid, at least for a split second. Donovan Bennett is back once again and Sid is going to join us during his time off because, well, the day calls for it. We're going to have an important conversation about women's hockey with our friend Sarah Nurse. And because of American Thanksgiving Day games tomorrow, we've bumped Nate Burleson up a day and he will join us in the second hour. But this isn't like most other days because Diego Maradona wasn't like most other athletes in fact donovan canada toronto like he was part of an elite group of what like three maybe five athletes all time i think ali pele maradona like is that what we're talking about here yeah i mean i'll add a couple who are still alive gretzky jordan right guys you know by their last name alone they're that big right they're like politicians you just know them by their names and really they're cultural figures more than sports figures because they changed our culture through sports and in their home countries they're synonymous with their sports and a point of pride and this guy was certainly at that level for those who don't know uh, as you mentioned Tim the football world lost Diego Armando Maradona at the age of 60 earlier today after he suffered a heart attack in his home in Buenos Aires and you could describe as you know a a five-time South American football of the year that's one way you could describe him and and that wouldn't be wrong you could describe him as FIFA's co-player of the century with Pele that certainly wouldn't be wrong You could describe him as the author of the greatest goal ever scored. And you'd probably have a pretty good argument. And you could describe him as the GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And you'd have a real good argument there as well. But even all that is just a small, small part of the story of Maradona. Yeah, you're right. On the pitch, off the pitch, around the pitch. Uh, But especially on the pitch, Maradona was bigger than soccer. Like, he was an icon in every sense of the word. And not just to his beloved Argentina, where he reached near-God status, or Napoli, where he may have been even bigger if that's possible, but to all fans of the beautiful game, except for maybe England. Maradona was a true sporting legend, and the hype was there early. Like, Prodigy made his pro debut at 15, And as in any triumph, there were struggles, stumbles along the way. Maradona had more than his fair share. When he was transferred for a world record fee, he actually was transferred twice before the age of 25 for a world record fee. And imagine a man considered by many to be the greatest of all time couldn't fit in at Barcelona. But his transfer to Napoli in the Italian Serie A unleashed something that the football world had never seen and may never see again. It also unleashed another side to the genius that never really let go, addiction. But those years, my God, those years, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. If he wasn't already a household name, his performance in the 1986 World Cup made him one. He dazzled at that tournament. And in the quarterfinals against England, a moment that would forever be known as the hand of God. 
Here's Maradona and England have contained him pretty well so far. This looking dangerous. That's a poor clearance. Maradona with Shilton. Looked like handball that. Maradona celebrating and the goal's going to be given. Shilton furious and so is Peter Reid. And the England manager Bobby Robson can't believe it. Definitely looks like handball. And maybe the famous, most famous goal of all time, Donovan? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, English fans who were wishing we had VAR a couple of decades ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that, that's yeah. not really his only um, famous uh, handball, no. right? Like, no. that's just part of the legacy that if you're um, a fan of the game, of the beautiful game, specifically from Argentina, you, you love. Yeah, the the hand of God goal is obviously linked to him, but the true nature of his gifts were seen just four minutes later when he scored in that game one of, if not the greatest individual goal of all time. And while I don't understand Spanish as much as I would like to, I think anyone can understand the commentator in Spanish as he witnesses and attempts to describe the greatness with a hint of disbelief that was at its peak Maradona, his skill, and his power. so good yeah for, so, for the for the radio audience like i don't understand spanish either but i was able to read the captions and, and the lines that stuck out to me i'm sorry i'm going to cry and what planet did you come from that to me yeah. just describes the man the goal the myth I'm starting to cry was a literal translation. I am starting to cry. You heard Gino, Gino, that's genius, like genius. Obviously, Argentina would win the World Cup, solidifying Maradona's status as an icon in his homeland, and he would be cemented in his country for the rest of his life as that icon, no matter what he did, and man, did he test that loyalty. Uh, positive drug tests, suspensions, being sent home from a World Cup, at a largely unsuccessful tenure as manager of the national team, and you would think that the legend would fade. It did not. He was flawed. We are all flawed. He was vulnerable. We are all vulnerable. He was still loved, and more than that, he was nearly canonized, especially in his homeland. Sure, we could attempt to encapsulate his incredibly full 60 years of life with a goal, a World Cup, 
or pictures of the grief in his homeland, but there is one video that stands out from the rest during his time at Napoli. His pre-match warm-up routine ahead of a 1989 UEFA Cup semifinal with Opus's Life is Life, now perhaps fittingly blaring in the stadium speakers, you could see, you could feel Maradona's joy, passion, and greatness on full display for no one and everyone at the same time. Amazing. Uh, Diego Maradona, this show would not be complete if we didn't uh, have one of the co-hosts that uh, perhaps encapsulated uh, what many thought earlier today on Twitter when he called him the GOAT. Sid Sixero joins us. Sydney, uh, welcome to your show. <laughs> it's, it's great to be on my show. Uh, great job with Van Vliet yesterday, by the way, boys. That was nice. I would have ruined it. Fantastic interview <laughs> for both of you. Tim, that... Um, that clip you just ran, the visual of him warming up, which is all over the place today. Um, I just heard an interview done by, not an interview, but Gary Lineker. For those who don't remember Gary Lineker, Gary Lineker was one of the greatest English strikers ever and was on the field in Mexico 86, basically when the hand of God happened and the other goal four minutes later. Gary Lineker now is running the Champions League coverage at BT Sport in Britain. So it's like the biggest show in Britain. And it was so funny to watch Rio Ferdinand and these analysts just asking him the questions just now on air. And one of the stories Lineker told was, it was he was at a charity game at Wembley Stadium. And it's like the best of, like Van Basten, the best players of that era. But everyone's in awe at Maradona. Because Maradona's club career, when he left Napoli in 91, he only played 61 more games. It basically, it was like Jim Brown. It kind of just ended for yeah. a lot of reasons, Tim, that you went into. Um but he said they, they, they came out for the match, and that, that video we just ran where he hammered the ball, Tim, at midfield, and then it came right down. Do you remember that part of the video? Yeah. Um, Gary Lineker said... On his foot. On his foot. He said the no. craziest thing he's ever seen in soccer. It wasn't the hand of God. It wasn't that other goal to make a 2 nothing Argentina over England in the quarterfinal in 86. Maradona went to midfield, and he did that. He hammered it as hard as he could. It went straight up. It would come straight down. He never moved more than three feet. He did it 13 straight times. And he said he went back. Gary Lineker was on Barcelona at the time. He went back to the new camp. He said some of the best players on earth tried it. The most they could do was three. And on the third, like, they were struggling. Like, they were, like they were not three feet from where they started, right? Like, they had to recover. 
So just the little, like you're hearing stories like that constantly today from guys who were on the field. And, and Tim, I got to be honest with you. This is uh, like, we talk a lot about our guys on the show. Like Walter Payton is a Tim McAuliffe guy. I know that. Basically every oiler from the eighties is both our guys. Like Donovan's <laughs> told me his guys, but quite frankly, I wasn't listening. So I don't know who his guys are, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith. Yes. Emmett Smith. Uh, separated shoulder ran for like 200 yards that night. What a night. But when you when I think of 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 Maradona, Maradona to me got me to love soccer because I'm sitting at my on my on the floor of my parents' living room in 1986 when CBC had World Cup rights in this country. That was a long time ago, but the CBC had him, and it was that World Cup, that legendary World Cup, and he was Tim. He was almost as good against Belgium in the semi the next game than he was against England. Go, but kids, go back, take a look. But Maradona to me, I was sad today for a lot of reasons, but. The, the, the biggest reason was he, he made me love soccer. He gave me that gift. And you knew the day was coming. He didn't live clean. We all know the stories. I'm happy he hit 60. He just, hit, he just turned 60 years old last month. Yeah. Let's remember that. Um, there was a point you didn't know if he'd hit 45. And I'm not kidding when I say that. So I, I think today is, um, you know, today's a, a, as much about celebration as it is losing a legend like this. But this is... Uh, He's the greatest soccer player to ever do it. Look at the resume. Look at the highlights. Look at the national team resume. Not just the club resume, the national team resume. And I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily want to start here, guys. We can jump in wherever. But you're also kind of seeing the Pelé thing. And the one thing I'll never forget about Maradona was he did not care to play the role of heel. He did not care if you liked him. He did not care if he was Razor Ramon and he and the the bad guy. He didn't get, he didn't care he couldn't care less. He he stood up to Pele. He stood up to you mentioned the Barcelona days, Tim. He left under under bad circumstances. It just wasn't a fit, and he wasn't afraid to tell people when things weren't going his way. He made you choose because he knew how good he was. I mean, he that that's why he left Napoli, Tim, in 1990. In the World Cup semifinal, it was a Tuesday night. Italy, who are hosting the tournament, are taking on Argentina in Napoli. So you have Diego Maradona and his Argentinian team in a place that he owns. Every second baby, male or female, is called Diego in Napoli. He owns <laughs> yes. that place. Yeah. The murals, you've been seeing them all, all online today. Like He still owns that town. So Diego Maradona, knowing full well, Argentina's not going to be rooted for heavily in Napoli the next night, says in a paper... Look, for 364 days of the year, Italy treats you like you are a foreigner in your own country. Except for the one day they need you. Back me. Back me tomorrow night. The whole thing blew. Not only did Maradona not get backed, Argentina won that night. Things got a little off, let's just say. Um, and that's where the relationship ended. But Maradona, that's, that's what I also respect about him. He didn't care what you thought. And he wanted you on his side or his way or the highway. And it was like that with defenders. It was like that with managers. It was like that with sporting directors. It was, it was again, he didn't play long. It was very Jim Brownish. It was four not, years, basically, of absolute brilliance that is, that's got you saying he's the greatest of all time. I'm, I'm so glad the, the guys were running those low-angle lives of his Italian soccer days because those are all over YouTube. You can see them. He's, and he's one of the greatest players ever because he did something I've never seen a player do consistently. Tim, he'd chip a goalie 
from seven yards out perfectly. He had no room. That's, that's how you know he was the best. Because I've never seen Pele do that. I've never seen Messi do it. I've never seen Ronaldo do it. I've never seen fat Brazilian Ronaldo do it. I've never seen any of them do it. Diego Maradona on the haircut ball. Brazilian. Haircut, haircut Brazilian. Haircut Brazilian. Sorry, yeah, it's different yeah. times, different times. <laughs> but, uh, but he, and he, listen, he could have won another World Cup. He was 17 in 1978 when Argentina didn't pick him. They won that year. I'm not, I'm not, you know, obviously they made the right choices, and it was a pretty corrupt tournament, so they're going to win anyway. But Maradona could have won a tournament in 78, and then in 1990, that really dicey tournament in Italy where his relationship with the whole country went south. Could have won it there, too. He should have had three World Cups. Three. And those teams he played for at Napoli, Tim, and Argentina, they weren't great. They weren't the Barcelona teams of Xavi and the Spanish teams. They weren't the AC no. Milan teams of Paolo Maldini and those guys. Very different teams, Tim. That's why he's the best. Yeah. He took ordinary to, to, to above ordinary talent and won trophy after trophy after trophy. And that's why he's a god. You mentioned earlier he's godlike status. No, no. D.U.A. Mort was the cover of L'Equipe that we ran. God is dead was their headline. One of the oldest sporting publications on earth. He is a god in soccer. And he made me love soccer. And today sucks. Today sucks. But he was amazing. So I had like seven questions for you. And the answer Time for Sarah Nurse. I'm sorry. I've used all my time. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. We I'm can sorry. see your passion. It's fine. This is why we do the show. Literally. This is Go why ahead, we do the show. No, ahead, I mean, we, for the radio audience who didn't get to see it, we, we, we played the clip of him, you know, doing keep-ups with the, the Puma life on the feet, cleats untied. He's doing keep-ups and dancing, basically, at the same time. But the, the, the football phrase, enjoying your football, like, he literally, like, lived it to a T. I, I don't know if in our era, is there, like, another example? Because to me, and I, I, I didn't watch the tournament in 86 because I was three years old. Um, but to me, it's no like excuse. Took, no excuse. <laughs> if you took, if you took Michael back. Jordan and his greatness and Dennis Rodman and his greatness in a wholly different way and made them one person, like that's kind of what you had as, <laughs> as a football player. Is, 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 have we ever seen anything in terms of like the force of personality that he was? No. I don't think and, – and it wasn't all good, man. Like let's be honest. No. This, was no, this was no Ali political – figure he has fidel castro tattooed on his leg like he has there are elements to diego i just do not agree with let's be clear about this um but in terms i I don't know who's the only guy i would bring up and hear me out is lebron just because he knows who he is he's centered in who he is he doesn't if he feels it's the right decision he'll make it and he's taken bad teams to titles like, Anthony Davis and him don't make it a great team. I don't know how good that Lakers team was. It just won. That's the first, my first comp to that from a competitive standpoint. It's true to yourself, and you bring people on your back. You bring a nation on your back, in Maradona's case, and yeah. you win. There's very few comps, Steve. It's an excellent question. I'd look at LeBron just because I, of the BS he had to face. But go ahead, Tim. You want to jump in on that? Uh, can, I, can I answer that with Mike Tyson? Because it's funny that I, I looked at Mike Tyson's tweet to Diego Maradona and earlier today I was on a radio show and I made the comparison between Tyson and Maradona for this and and for me these are things that I look at personally but I think they showed and I said this in that piece both of them showed a a vulnerability uh, a human flawed individual that had the world by what everyone would deem its 
in the world in the palm of their hands. How about that? That's the PG yeah. of saying, PG way of saying, and they couldn't do it. For better or and worse. For better or worse, yeah. but they, they couldn't do it. And for me, um, it's almost it almost endeared Diego even more to Argentina. The fact that he was flawed, the fact that he was vulnerable, and the fact that he came from nothing, had everything, and lived life the same way. Yeah, I mean, you were never going to get it out of him. Like, we all, like, he came from the slums of Buenos Aires. You kind of had the feeling this could, this is not a new story. Guy comes from nothing, one of the best we've ever seen, the entrapments of fame and the drugs and the sex and everything that comes with that. He, when you're a god, you, you either handle it in certain, you handle it in, 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 in very, very unique ways, or you're Diego. And it's not a new story. Again, this is this we've seen this before. You could almost call this. He was too big, Tim. You're right. Like he yeah. was that level. But I, I, I gotta say, man, that it was that fighting mentality on the pitch that made him yeah. great. Unfortunately, he couldn't fight enough off it to ward off those demons. But Tim, I'm going through some of the things today. He still holds the record for most times fouled in a World Cup. It happened in '86. <laughs> And he still holds the single-game record for getting your ass kicked in a World Cup. It was Italy in 82. Look at that video online. It is a yeah. mauling when he was like the new kid on the block. You know, like they're trying to, yeah. they're trying to teach him a lesson. So we can go for three hours on this. Forgive me. Go ahead. All right. I was going to say in that 86 World Cup, to, to further your point, he played every minute of every match. Yeah, he had to. <laughs> he was fouled more yeah, than it. anyone ever, yeah. and he played every. All right, last word because I can okay, tell. We gotta go. And no, no, to you, Sid Sixero, because this is your guy, and we live for these moments. And as much as we are hosts of shows like this, the one thing that I think makes us different, Donovan included in this, is that we love sports, and you can tell. So I'm going to give you your last word on on a reason why you love sports. Um. He was unlike any player you've ever seen in your life. The way he, the way he attacked the ball, the way he, he skipped, didn't beat, he skipped by defenders. And you ran it a bit in that 2 nothing goal against England. Still can't believe they didn't foul him, but whatever. Um, the, way he, the way he scored. Tim, he wasn't like a winger like Ronaldo and Messi, right? Like he's your normal, he's in, back then, that is, he is a central mid. He scored 37 times in 91 games for Argentina. From that position, that is unheard of back then and basically now. Um, I love sports, and I, I love Diego Maradona, and I always say he's the greatest player of all time because he, you just saw stuff from him you didn't see from anyone else. It wasn't close. He was a short dude, but a giant these visuals from Aztec in Mexico City, it was, it was a coronation. And you don't see moments like that in sports anymore. And those are the things burned into my head. Now, as a kid growing up, that helps, right? When we're, our youth is shaped around sports and those types of memories, so they hold a special place in our hearts. But uh, I will always, I'm going to ignore the bad stuff with Diego. It's easy for me to do, and it's easy for us as humans to do sometimes. But for this conversation, for the next 24 hours, and when I watch that doc again later tonight, and I encourage everyone to do so, it's great, the latest one that came out. I'm going to remember him as the greatest player of all time. And he gave me the gift of loving soccer. Thank you. All right, back to vacation, 6 
I got dinner. Sorry, I got to go, guys. Nice. <laughs> nice job with Van Vliet. Seriously, nice job. I would ask quite like fart questions, and it wouldn't have made any sense, but nice job. Nice All job. Right, we'll see how that nice. goes. Is it, uh, I love the color on the walls. Tell your in-laws, Donovan. Very nice. Love the colors <laughs> on the walls. Love them. This is the Pantone. It's red. Yeah. <laughs> you got to swatch. You <laughs> see you, boys. All right, there is uh, Sid Sixero from the Sixero Compound on vacation uh, because of the news of the day of Diego Maradona passing he decided he wanted to jump on, and because it's one of his guys, we gave him the time. Uh, we got a couple of our guys. Nate Burleson going to join us a little later on. We'll walk down further the road of uh, Diego Maradona also on today's show as Jonathan Wilson will join us at the top of the hour. But coming up next, just one of our dudes, Sarah Nurse from uh, Team Sonnet and our National Women's Program. Uh, there is some big news in women's hockey. We will talk to it, talk about it with Sarah Nurse next, right here on Tim and Sid, featuring Donovan Bennett, live on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and Sportsnet Television. Welcome back to Tim and Sid, featuring Donovan Bennett, still to come, Nate Burleson, our guy stops by. We pushed him up a day because... American Thanksgiving tomorrow is supposed to be three games, now down to two games. We'll talk about that with Nate Burleson coming up. And you might like his backdrop. Let me tell you, he's, uh, he's balling. Uh, Jonathan Wilson also going to join us uh, as, we, uh, as we celebrate the life of Diego Maradona today. But DJ, some other news happening today. Yeah, the Dream Gap Tour is back for another go-around, which is amazing, thanks to some great corporate sponsors, which are badly needed, and the work of the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, who wanted to keep the momentum that women's hockey has built over the last couple of years going. Yeah, the Dream Gap Tour announced its uh, five-team model last month and the introduction of the Secret Cup in honor of the million-dollar commitment from Secret, which I'm not ashamed to admit I've stolen from my wife in a pinch, and it works like a charm. The tour will feature five teams this year. Toronto, known as Team Sonnet because of their corporate sponsorship, Calgary, Montreal, Minnesota, and New Hampshire. Team Sonnet includes Canadian national team stars like Brianne Jenner, Natalie Spooner, Sarah Nurse, Renata Fast, and Jocelyn LaRock. Our friend, Sarah Nurse, joins us now. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks for doing this. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. Without a doubt. Um, man, uh, 2020 has been challenging for many. Um, how important, though, was this for women's hockey to get something that you guys could do during this year and in 2021? I think it's absolutely huge. With 2020, there's been so much uncertainty um, for everybody. And so when we think about women's hockey and women's sports, it's hard to create momentum and it's harder to keep the momentum. So we worked very hard to create that wave. And now we want to keep coming wave after wave. And so these corporate partners that we have partnered with in the last year are absolutely incredible. And they have a belief in us and a faith in us and they support us. And so we're very excited to have them on board. I want to talk about those corporate partners because I'm still stuck on the fact that Timmy revealed that he he steals the secret. And real talk, Tim, so do I. Like all these hot <laughs> lights on us, I'm sweating, yeah. but I still smell good. So maybe it's not just the two of us. But but more importantly, having partners like Sonnet, like like Secret, what are they getting and in investing in the women's game? And why should others do the same so they don't see it as charity? They see it as real opportunity for growth. 
I think when I look at our corporate partners that we already have, like Sonnet, like Secret, like Adidas, they invest in us and they believe in us and they ultimately have the same values and goals as us, which not only means a lot to me as a player, but to me as a person and realistically to me as a consumer. Because when I see when I see a brand and when I see a partner like that who has that belief in females and has that belief in female in sport, that resonates with me. And I know that resonates with a lot of people in the consumer world. And so when I see these partners um, willing to partner with us in women's pro hockey, this is a significant investment and they're ultimately investing in us. And so we're definitely excited to have them on board and, and they mean a lot to us. National team member Sarah Nurse joining us here on Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett. Um, we had a couple conversations during like the prime of the pandemic as if there has gone away in any way, shape or form. But I digress. But one of the things that we pointed to was it felt like women's sports was uh, capturing a, a momentum, a momentum in English that we hadn't seen previously when it hit. Did it feel like you guys were on the cusp of something kind of bigger than the game? as this pandemic hit? Definitely. I think in the last few years with where we've been at with women's hockey, um, we were on the up and up and we were riding a pretty high wave. I mean, we came out of the NHL All-Star game and that created so much buzz and a buzz that's really only surrounding like the Olympic games. And so we were so excited to have the world championship at home in Halifax, because again, that's huge yeah. buzz. So of course with COVID coming, um, unfortunately that didn't get to happen, but we're doing our best and we're working very hard so that we don't lose that momentum and that when we are back on the ice, we're going to be ready to play. You know, we're seeing that type of momentum for women in all facets of our society. And specifically, we're, we're seeing it for black women in all facets of our society, whether it's Kamala Harris in politics, whether it's what the WNBA girls did to lead in Black Lives Matter, and whether it's what's going on in, in hockey. With yourself, Sonny um, wrote a great uh, article about the plight of black women in hockey for sportsnet.ca. Is there space to even grow that tent even further so that women's hockey is also for everyone? Absolutely. Um, I think for me, I actually talk about this all the time. I had a question about a year ago that asked me about racism in women's hockey and the different racial inequalities in women's hockey. And that question stumped me because for as long as I can remember until I was 22 years old on the Olympic team, I was the only non-white person on my team uh, until I joined my teammate Bridget Laquette, who is Indigenous. And even for me, I didn't even realize because it was so, I feel like I was turning a blind eye to it, that there were so many racial inequalities in hockey because we're so focused on the gender inequalities. And so I don't think that things need to be separated. I think that we can tackle inequalities together. And so we're working on a gender inequality here, but there's also a racial inequality that we've recognized in women's hockey. And so we're looking to tackle that too and truly make hockey for everyone. Yeah, equality is equality is equality. You can't pick and choose where you want your equality. It's a, it's a great point. Um, I know that your team uh, looks pretty nice. Uh, we mentioned some of the names, Jenner, Spooner, uh, Renata Fast. Um, were you lobbying to get anyone else on the team with you? Like, was there any sort of ability to say, we want to draft here, there, or there? Oh, well, there's a lot of convincing that we try to do, especially <laughs> for the girls coming out of college. Uh, we right. try to pretty hard on it, but... Honestly, um, it's unfortunate, but here it kind of depends on where your work is, maybe where your family is, right. because it, um, we don't get paid a, a livable wage. So for me, fortunately, my family's in, in uh, the Toronto area. And so being in Toronto is easy for me. 
Um, but definitely there, there's some convincing that we try to do. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it, right. And I don't want it to, to go with, without double clicking on it. You don't get paid a livable wage, but you're expected every four years to compete at a really high level at the Olympics, but in between somehow keep up that standard. So what does that mean for you as someone who's endeavoring to be a professional athlete? How does that make things that much more difficult? It's difficult in the sense that we, a lot of the times, aren't recognized as professional athletes, um, even though we're doing exactly what a professional athlete does. I mean, I get up in the morning, I train five, six days a week off the ice, and then I go to my on-ice practice, and I am on the ice four or five times a week. So I do the things that professional athletes do. I just may not be regarded as that right now because in our world, in our society, um, women's professional hockey players aren't regarded as that. And so... That's the frustrating sense and the fact that we do the little things um, that we need to do to keep ourselves prepared and keep ourselves at the top of our game because ultimately when the game comes, we have to be ready. Um, and so that's something that we take pride in, but hopefully in the coming years, we'll be compensated for that as well. It's part of the reason why we're doing this, right? Absolutely, exactly. Okay. I'm going to be honest here. Uh, I grew up in a family of all boys and having a daughter is a bit of an eye-opener when you grow up in a family of all boys. And I'm going to be honest, I've never really been comfortable with Barbies. Just truth. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've never been comfortable with Barbies until now. Because for those who don't know, Tim Hortons is selling Barbie dolls, but not just any Barbie dolls. They are selling limited edition dolls featuring Sarah Nurse. I'll get in there. <laughs> and her Olympic teammate, Mary Philippe Poulain. Uh, what's it like to have a Barbie doll featuring you? Well, to me, that is one of the coolest things that could have ever happened to me because I was a huge Barbie girl when I was five, six, seven, eight years old. Um, and so I think of me, a little girl, walking into Tim Hortons to get a bagel before a game and seeing a hockey playing Barbie, and that would have been a game changer for me. And I think this Barbie is kind of breaking the different stereotypes surrounding hockey and women in sport because I never saw Barbie dolls that were athletic when I was a kid. And so I didn't think that being athletic was cool. But then at the same time, me as a hockey player, I didn't think that playing with Barbies was cool because the two worlds never collided. And so I think we're breaking different barriers down and different stereotypes down and being like, Little girls can be whoever they want. They can like whatever they want, um, and they really have limitless potential. So to me, this is one of the coolest things that little girls can have. Okay, but the important question is, rate it. Does it actually look like you? <laughs> like, that, that's what we need to Like, you cannot get a woman's hair wrong. You have to come correct. Does the Barbie look like you? Yeah. So it's funny. So I have my own one-of-a-kind Barbie that they made for me, and so does Pooh. And so those were made exactly like us. Um, and there's only one of them in the world and I have it. And so I'm going to have to show you guys the one that I have, but it does look exactly like me. Like the, the brows are on fleek, everything. <laughs> 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 so I love it. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, two things that I learned from this interview. Uh, one, we're doing great things for women's professional hockey. And two, Mary Philippe Poulain's nickname is Pooh. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Sarah, we always appreciate when you stop by and anytime that we can help uh, and aid this cause, please drop by and do this because it's fun to talk to you and it's great to get this word out. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Uh, there is Sarah Nurse uh, from The Hammer, uh, Hamilton, Ontario.
which speaks to the Tim Hortons connection too. Yes. I have no problem. I I had the same problem that Sarah had what, as a kid. Eyebrows? No. <laughs> well, Making sure they're on fleek. <laughs> that too. But with the barbecue, you, you still have the problem. And then what are you talking about? I I wear glasses on purpose, son. Don't even act like I have a unibrow because of COVID-19. Never mind. We'll take the break. When we come back, we're going to break down the week that is in the National Football League next right here on Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett on Sportsnet Radio and Television. Welcome back to Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett. Uh, Nate Burleson and Jonathan Wilson still to come. Jonathan will weigh in on the death of Diego Maradona at the age of 60. Uh, Big J Mick wrote in and said, if you aren't watching Tim and Sid's tribute to Maradona with Sid Sixero, Tim McAuliffe, and Donovan Bennett right now, you just aren't living. Uh, we appreciate that. Gareth wrote in about the uh, the video of Maradona warming up for the game. And said, did it all with the boots untied as well. Hashtag goat. <laughs> did you notice that as he's dancing and doing yes. all the warm-ups that the boots are untied? Yes. Yes. Uh, Ryan writes Hashtag in. Hashtag goat is for real. Yeah. Ryan writes in and says one of the reasons he was such a god in Argentina was that win against England was just four years after the Falklands War. That was a huge part of that eight, uh, 1986 World Cup as well was that there was such political, like meant so much in Argentina to beat England in 86. That was a part of the equation, uh, most definitely, Ryan. And uh, Derek wrote in and talked about Mike Tyson and my comparison of Diego Maradona to Mike Tyson. And I thought it was insinuated, if not said, that both had everything in their hands and screwed it up. That's, that's kind of what I meant by bringing up Mike Tyson and Diego Maradona. I thought it was like a really astute uh, comparison because both came from absolute poverty, had right. to fight and scratch. Their sport was their way to get out of it. And then all of a sudden, faster than anyone before them in their sport, they were given so much money and so much fame and so much attention. And they weren't able to channel, to channel it properly. And even though they're high, was super super high and their peak in their sport was great that that flame burnt out relatively quick and then they had you know rough post careers transitioning but somehow no matter what happened or no matter their transgressions they kind of were a lovable character later in life now obviously mike tyson is still alive but they were able to some way you know rehab the way that people yeah, think and look and feel more importantly when they see them i mean we didn't get to talk about it with sid but some of the most um you know memorable images i'll think of when i think of diego maradona was not him on the field and not him during his career is him in a booth watching argentina after uh, he's he's retired but he was just so into it and so in love with the country and, and just having uh, an amazing time if they're playing well or just dying with every squandered chance if they weren't playing well. And so um, I, yeah, I thought the, the Tyson one was a, was a great, great comp. And finally, Janine writes in and says, uh, Tim, why do you keep touching your face yesterday and today so distracting? Uh, it's because I need to shave my beard. I, I need to and I don't have the time. I haven't had the time. To shave the, I literally don't have time to shave right now, so <laughs> I'm gonna do it eventually. I swear, I'll get to it. Oh, just keep growing it. Just get yeah. get yourself a it's little annoying. Fred Van Vliet, like not nah. fully hardened, 
Just a nice, nice little Rick Ross, little Ricky Rose. Do it. Right. I'm down for right. it. It's all, it matches my sweater today. Like I'm not. No, I'm not doing this anymore. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of black. There's a lot of gray. <laughs> it's a championship beard. I love it. Uh, should we should we talk a little little? Yeah. Bit? Yeah. If we got the time, let's do uh, it. Speaking. Yeah, speaking of champions, the Tampa Bay Lightning have signed restricted free agent defenseman Mikhail Sergachev to a three-year deal with an AAV of $4.8 million, which means the deal puts the Lightning roughly $2 million over the salary cap and restricted free agents Anthony Sorelli and Eric Cernak remain unsigned. So, so now the question becomes, with that cap situation, will they be able to sign their other RFAs that are still pending? That is indeed the question. Like, as soon as you see Sergeyev sign, it's like, oh, great deal. Good for him. Looks like the Bolts got another guy under contract. And then immediately you start doing the math. And you did the math correctly. So we're talking about $2 million over the cap and two significant restricted free agents to come. So either we're going to see an offer sheet very soon that puts them in a very tough spot, or they're going to have to unload. And I think this has been part of what the NHL has faced in this global pandemic and this flat cap. We're going to see it. It hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And I think this deal, and you can go a little bit over the cap because we're in the off season and that gives them a little bit more flexibility here, but that doesn't mean that they can start the season like this. Um, They're going to have to do something. And I don't know if the NHL wanted all this when they got the cap, but this is what they got, $1.9 million over the cap, 19 players under contract, and Sorelli says there's nothing new to report on negotiations. Something's going to happen there, and it's going to be real interesting to see how it works out. Like, I mean, we brought up how they won without Steve Stamkos when it happened. Could they trade Steve Stamkos? Yeah, I mean, that's a $8.5 million AAV, and you're going to have to convince him to waive his no-movement clause. But, I mean, I would hate to see Stammer not be there, right? Like, like I, I think of the Lightning, and I think of him. But also, when I think of them winning a cup, many of the, the important moments in that run, he wasn't on the ice for them. So could, could they still be really, really good without him? Yeah, probably. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's... I mean, the math says something has to happen, right? And, and, and that's a way to move a lot of money really quickly. You mentioned that flat cap. You, you're looking at some escalated costs in terms of just running an operation in a pandemic and, and what travel might be like, what you know, PPA might be like in, in outside of a bubble scenario. You're, you're looking at potentially no fans or less fans, um, depending on what happens. And that cap is flat when... Traditionally, contracts year over year escalate and rise. So a lot of clubs are going to have tough decisions. So I know escrow is a swear word, and I know the owners are going to at some point get some money back, but that has nothing to do with the fact that you still have to fit what these deals would have been under the projected cap, and that cap's not moving anytime soon. So there's going to be some hard, hard conversations in front offices around the league, and Tampa Bay is a great example of one. 
Uh, we only got about two minutes left in this block. Uh, we're going to have Nate Burleson on a little bit later on. But there are three games scheduled for tomorrow. There are now just two games mm-hmm. scheduled for Thanksgiving Day south of the border. The Ravens-Steelers today was moved to Sunday after seven Ra- Raven players reportedly tested positive for COVID-19 over the last three days. Some Steeler players are pissed. Do they have the right to be upset? I mean, not really. Like, I feel for them. It's not fair, but like, nothing about our lives nowadays is fair. Uh, and they've just been able to manage it better than anybody else. But but even moving the game from from Thursday to Sunday, like to me, that just gives us more time to find more positives. This it's not going to be fair for the Ravens, who've done a pretty good job at being out front in terms of the regulations. That they're going to be missing uh, guys in in what is a divisional matchup that may have playoff implications for them. So no. Uh, Eric Ebron, it's not fair, but it's not really fair for anybody. It's not fair that Gus Edwards was going to go from 20 snaps to 70 snaps because <laughs> his two backfield mates uh, ha- have COVID-19. So um, it's a tough situation. We're running out of dates to move games to, and, and I think that's the next shoot to drop. Is what are they going to continue to do with this schedule moving forward? Yeah, that's, that to me is the multi, multi-million dollar question surrounding the NFL. We'll pose that to Nate Burleson. He's joining us 625 Eastern time. So in less than about 30 minutes, we will have Nate Burleson join us and talk a little football. But coming up next, we will continue to celebrate the life of Diego Armando Maradona. Jonathan Wilson joins us to discuss next on Tim and Sid, Sportsnet Radio and TV. It's time for Real Sports Talk with Tim McCallum and Sid Sexero. Donovan Bennett's in for Sid Sexero, at least in the second hour. Sexero stopped by in the opening hour to discuss uh, the life and times of Diego Maradona and all of its nuance. Uh, Jonathan Wilson will do the same in about five minutes. And Nate Burleson, our guy, uh, on the week that will be in the National Football League in about 25 minutes' time. Just to follow up on the Steelers-Ravens postponement a little bit, Donovan, I feel like there's two conversations that are being had here. One is, of course, health takes priority over everything that is sport and or football. And... Every time we have one of these conversations, we put that as the caveat in front because I think we all agree, or at least most of us agree. But when you're talking about what the NFL is doing, which is trying to jam as much as they possibly can without much regard for the actual... Like, the last time the Steelers and Ravens played, um, I think it was Marlon Humphreys played the entire game, every snap, and then has COVID positive on Monday after he'd already sat out practice because he was sick. Like in the, in the scheme of overall public health of course, a couple of days don't matter in the overall scheme of what the NFL is trying to do. San Fran had to go out there and they had half a team missing. Yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's like, well, who, who are you mad at? Like Eric, you had the opportunity to opt out. You didn't, right? Checks are still clearing on the 15th and the 30th. And I don't mean that to say that that's okay. But 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 
again, the Ravens are going to be playing shorthanded. Would you prefer to play them earlier when the incubation period isn't over and you could be playing against guys who who infect you with COVID-19 and thus you potentially infect your family with COVID-19? Like, there is no great way to do this. We're struggling with this in all facets of our society. I'm watching the news every day, and it looks like there's a pep rally outside of a barbecue joint because people don't want to to be told they can't have brisket right now. Like, this is where we are. So, So if you have to wait... 72 hours to play football for millions of dollars. Like, I think you're going to be okay in the grand scheme of things. None of this is perfect. The, the, the competitive balance of the league was gone a long time right. ago when we just said, right. we're making the schedule up. We don't know. Right. You're playing this week. You're playing this week. You don't have a bye. Now you do have a bye. So I think you just got to roll with the punches. And every week that you get in where you're still healthy and the check's still clear, you just got to say thank you, basically. Yeah. You and I, though, look at this and say the competitive balance has been gone. And the guys in yes. it, I'm not sure that they can look at it and say that the competitive balance is gone. That's just the innate nature of an athlete in the mix. Well, but you're, you're, you're playing a team where multiple players and coaches oh, I know. have tested positive for COVID-19. I know. So you, you point prefer... to San Fran. No, but you point to San Fran and say they played, they played hurt next man up. No, no, I, no. Oh, I get that. But, but Eric, right? I'm going to talk to you right now, Eric. Like, mm-hmm. let, let, let me level with you. You'd prefer to play them on Thursday because that's how your walk day thus far is scheduled and potentially not know if some of the guys on that field who you're going to dap up afterwards have COVID-19, but, but, it, but it hasn't you know, come to the surface yet. And then maybe your season is derailed because your locker is the next locker to have COVID-19 run through it. Like, like right. what, what's, the, what's the better option here? You wait a couple days and have more time to break down some film? Or you play on Thursday because you want to eat a, a chicken wing at the end of the game after you ball out for two touchdowns. Like, I, I think everyone needs to take a deep breath and look at this with some empathy and look at it sensibly. And, and so you blasting at yeah, NFL... Like who? Who are you referring to? I think Roger Goodell is like, I watch it, Steelers. The NFL is not get doing you this that. Time. That's the What's point. That? All right, we got it. The NFL is not doing that. So why no, should the I mean, players do it? Not, uh, Nate Burleson is going to join us in in a couple of minutes. But in the meantime, uh, we want to continue to celebrate the life that was and the full life that was mm-hmm. uh, Diego Maradona. Here to help us out is someone who just posted a column on theguardian.com. Jonathan Wilson joins us. Jonathan, thank you for doing this, and thank you for staying. I don't know if 11 p.m. or thereabouts is past your bedtime, but I appreciate you staying up late to come and join us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, there, there aren't many like Maradona. Like This is one we were talking about off the top of this show. This is one of maybe like five athletes ever that you could walk around this globe in every corner and truly find fans in like nine of ten of those places, isn't he? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think uh, what that suggests is it's not just about talent. I mean, he was clearly extraordinarily talented. But if you look at what he won over his career, it wasn't really that much. He won three league titles, two domestic cups, a UEFA Cup, and then the World Cup, which obviously is is huge. But you know, for somebody of, of you know, compared to, to Messi, say, and it's it's nothing. But it was his charisma, it was the tumult that went around him. And I think almost because he was, in a sense, he was constantly battling himself and battling against this, this kind of swirl of darkness around himself, that made what he did achieve 
that much more transcendent. You know, he's someone who obviously is beloved and in the hearts in Argentina and was a heartbreaker in England. How is he being remembered now, both at home and abroad around the world? Well, I mean, England is, is obviously what, I'm, what I've seen the most of. I, I, I think, um, I don't know, I mean, judging by Twitter and judging by tomorrow's front pages, there, there is a divide. There are people who still haven't forgiven him for the handball in, in 986. I, I think as time has gone by since then, I think attitudes have softened. Um, Gary Lineker, of course, played in that game, gave a very moving tribute to him uh, on TV tonight. Yeah. Um, there was, a, there was a lovely clip, actually, of Peter Reid that was, was posted. Peter Reid was, was one of the midfielders who, who Maradona went past in that, that famous run in the, in the quarterfinal in 86. And he, he posted a clip of when the two of them met. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but it must have been you know, within the last sort of five or ten years. And he saw the sort of mutual affection and respect that was there. So I, I think the players he played in that game, maybe not Peter Shilton, but you know, that's a slightly separate issue, have, have broadly got over the handball you know i think there's been an acceptance that you know that's just something that happens in sport um but tomorrow's front pages of the tabloids uh have, have very much focused on the handball i think other newspapers and, and, and maybe other parts of the tabloids uh, are looking at him more more in the round what, what he meant um but you know in, in argentina there's, there's a, a profound sense of grief and, and i think um if you, if you look back at 1994 when he, when he failed, the, failed the drug test at the World Cup, and there, were, there was this enormous outpouring of public grief in Buenos Aires. And it, it, you know, people say it was, there's only ever been two, two episodes like that in Argentinian public life one on the death of Pelon in 1974, and then 20 years to the day later when Maradona failed the drug test in 94. Now, obviously, with COVID restrictions, that's going to be much restricted today. But I would suspect that sense of loss of their country's greatest national icon, you know, greater than Che Guevara, greater than Evita, greater than Perón, will be felt very profoundly. Football writer, author, uh, Jonathan Wilson, joining us here on Tim and Sid. What many forget about his journey, too, was where he came from. Like, I think Maradona never really shook it, never really forgot it. Like, he didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth, did he? No, I mean, he couldn't be further from a silver spoon. So he, he was born in, um, well, he was born in Lanús, but he, he, he grew up in, in Bichafiorito, which is a, a shanty town in, in Buenos Aires, just on the banks of the Riachuela, which is sort of the smaller of the two rivers in, in the city, which has great symbolic significance because it was across the Riachuela that the great sort of popular wave that, that carried Pelon into power in 1946. So, you know, it was the crossing of the Riachuela was the great, great moment of that, that campaign. Um, but yeah, his, his father had been a, a ferryman um, on the Paraná River in, in, in Corrientes, in the north of the country, a very poor area. And yeah, his job had been to take cows across to an island so they could graze and then bring them back on, on his little boat. Uh, his mother had, had moved to the city, to, to the capital, to, to find work as a, as a cleaner or as a servant. And, and then you know, his father came and, and joined her. But his father had to build, build their own house out of, you know, some corrugated iron and you see the the photographs of, of the house you grew up in it's you know it's a shack um the the the, the place was so violent that the police had to be bust in every morning and bust out every night you know, they couldn't have a permanent presence there so it was a very dangerous impoverished place and you have loads of stories about uh when, when he first began going to trials at clubs 
Um, and he was immensely talented, but they were looking at him and thinking, well, this kid can't be seven years old, can't be eight years old. He's too small. He must be younger than that. And then you're demanding ID to prove how old he was because he, he, you know, he appeared so malnourished. And that had a huge effect because they start giving him supplements, they start giving him injections to build him up. And you then see a pattern of uh, self-medicating, which I, I think then tips over later in his career in, into, into something illegal. Yeah, you talk about you know him being so small at a young age, and just think of another star from the same country and and Messi and I always felt the comparisons are so unfortunate for Messi and that's such a weight to have um but but now that we we get to relish in in what Maradona accomplished do, do you think some of that comparison will relent and people will just be able to celebrate Messi for what he's giving us now um I, I think that has begun to relent I think you know I've seen attitudes change in Argentina over the last decade, but Messi's never going to be loved in the way that Maradona's loved. You know, Maradona is, is unique, and there's a, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the first of which, or maybe the most important of which, is that he represents a sort of an ideal Argentinian type that from the 1920s onwards, there's this conversation in Argentina about what it is to be Argentinian, uh, which I think is a much more, um, much more sort of profound question, much more central question uh, there, which you know, is a sort of immigrant country where the, uh, the the indigenous population is essentially wiped out in a in a genocide in the late 19th century, and you have this this you know, massive Europeans, Italians, Spaniards, Northern European Jews, uh, Arabs, British, Irish, French, German arrive, and, and they, they're trying to make this society, and they come from vastly different backgrounds. But one thing they do all have in common is they all support this football team that wear the blue and white shirts when they're playing Uruguay or Chile or Brazil. And so the way that team plays is is central to, to their self-image. And and so the, the sort of the, the heart of this team is seen as being the P-Bay, the, the urchin, the kid from the streets who hasn't learned to play on the big grassy fields of the, of the posh British schools where the game's about running and about strength. He's learned to play in these mass games and he's quite quite small areas where it's all about close technical control, about street-wiseness, about looking after yourself. And so Boracotto, um, the great editor of El Grafico, the, 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 the great Argentinian football magazine, in 1928, uh, he, he wrote uh, an editorial in which he said if you were to erect a statue to the, to the spirit of Argentinian football, it would be this P-Bay. And he gives this description of a the shock of dark hair, the, the, the teeth worn down by eating yesterday's bread is his rather beautiful phrase. And he describes the holes in the shirt because the kids are impoverished. And he describes the, the, the mischievous glint in the eye. And if he gave somebody that description and didn't tell them the context and said, who's that? Everybody would say Maradona. So it's like his coming was prophesied. So when he turns up and starts playing in the, in the, you know, in the first division, age 16, and then he leads Argentina to the under-20 World Cup, it's as if you know the this prophecy Boracotto had made is is being fulfilled. This is the spirit of Argentinian football come to life, and the fact that he you know, his, his father is of indigenous descent. So Maradona described himself as uh, a cabecita negra, uh, a little blackhead, literally, which was Evita's term for um, the you know, the very marginalised people of mixed indigenous and Italian descent, which Maradona was. And, and so he represents that poverty. 
and Messi and Messi wasn't rich growing up, but his father was a was a manager at a factory. You know, he was upper working class if you want to start grading it. So he doesn't have that that same connection with with the you know the people on mass on with with Peron's people. And then of course Messi left so early. So even though Maradona was only there for a few seasons at Lacatinos Juniors and then and at Boca, he was had you know four or five seasons where he was playing at home. Then he went back in the nineties and of course he won the World Cup. And winning the World Cup means so much more than anything Messi's achieved for for Argentinians. And beating England at that time, too, was mm. meant so much to the Argentinians. Uh, if you've read uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, the names heard long ago, the outsider inverting the pyramid behind the curtain, you have read uh, our guest, Jonathan Wilson, who is joining us here on Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett. The, the, I think what you're describing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, a part of the reason why um, he was so beloved is, is that the beauty was flawed. The beauty is that he was flawed, that we are all flawed, and that he was kind of vulnerable to a point. And, and almost the differential treatment that he got caused him to spiral too. Like it's, it seems to me to be all intertwined. Do you, do you read it the same way? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, yeah, but there's also a basic point, which is I think we're much more, and when I say we, I mean sort of, uh, sporting culture generally is, is rather better at protecting our, our stars now than was the case in the late 70s and the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really accelerates Maradona's decline in, into, into drug, drug abuse is he turns up in Barcelona as the world's most expensive player and is essentially given no support. And he moves his family over and they're living in this sort of huge house in Barcelona, but it's a culture completely different to what they're used to. I mean, even though the language is the same, so you know, his mother had panic attacks because she just couldn't couldn't adapt to this this you know, radical change of life. So I think that sort of thing, you know, football is is better dealing with now. But but fundamentally, you're absolutely right. There's this huge pressure, this huge expectation, and he he really struggles to deal with that. And I, I think there is a really interesting divergence there that, that Messi, certainly up until this last year or so, has been relentlessly brilliant. And one of the problems with the rentless brilliance is it kind of gets boring. You know, we just sort of, oh, he scored 50 goals again this season. Oh, look, he's got another brilliant goal. And, and so some of the magic is lost by familiarity. But there's also a weird sense that Messi doesn't struggle for it. You know, he just does it. And whereas Maradona's struggle was very much on the surface. And so you probably make a case that in, in his entire career, Maradona had four or five absolutely outstanding seasons, whereas Messi's had 10 or 12. But somehow, because it, it, it feels more easily won, uh, we, we maybe don't credit it to the same level. It's not that same sense that he's having to, to, to fight those inner demons. Yeah, that's a great point. And lastly, before you know, we let you go, you, you talked about the, the modern footballer, and I, I can't help but whether it's watch the HBO documentary or, or, or think about Messi, read your great article in The Guardian and look at it through a modern-day lens. When guys are on international duty, we, we know right away online when they've you know, snuck someone into the room that they're not supposed to. Meanwhile, Messi <laughs> had this other life. If, if he came around later, closer to now in a different generation, would we feel differently about him or would a lot of the things that happened just never get to that point because of the way he would have been covered? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the notion that you'd have a, a you know, cocaine addiction for eight years before he got caught 
I, I think that just couldn't happen now. Um, I think he could never have the, the you know, a very sinister relationship. He, and I don't think entirely volitional relationship he had with the Camorra, with the Mafia in, in, in Naples. Um, I don't think he, he would have been driven as hard as he was. You know, when he goes to Boca, Boca makes this terrible mistake that they, they sign him in dollars. Almost, you know, I think it's about a month later that the peso is devalued. So suddenly they're having to pay four times more than they thought they were paying. Uh, and so they, they play this relentless churn of, of friendlies just to raise funds to try and pay for them. And then they just have to sell them after a year. Now, I, I, I mean, even, I mean, of course, clubs can make you know, financial errors. But even if they did, I don't think there'd be such a blatant attempt to, to sort of sweat the asset. I think there'd be an awareness of the damage that was doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we are better at dealing with that kind of thing. And I, I th- yeah, as, as you say, I think the scrutiny players are under, um, both from, from the public, from, from the press, and, and from, from, from the clubs themselves, would prevent things getting to, to, to quite the level that they did. That said, you know, maybe the result of that would just be he got kicked out of the club and we never actually saw him produce that kind of form. That, that you know, Maybe those two things in some way are, are indivisible. Uh, listen, this has been great insight. We really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. Uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. No problem. There is uh, Jonathan Wilson. If you read his books, you know he is uh, one of the preeminent writers in football right now. Um, speaking of football, we'll go American football for a split second. Before Nate Burleson joins us, I have an update on the Ravens and Steelers situation. Uh, Tom Pelissero of the NFL Network is saying that the Ravens have disciplined a strength and conditioning coach for not reporting symptoms and not consistently wearing a mask or tracking device, which may have contributed to the team's rash of COVID-19 cases per sources. Uh, He follows up by saying, proactively disciplining the coach, the Ravens potentially could reduce or avoid discipline they face from the league over an outbreak that forced the postponement of the Thanksgiving night game against the Steelers. So some insight on maybe why people are mad. Yeah, so I would like to retract my statement where I said the Ravens <laughs> have done a good job in handling this, because clearly that's not the case. I love how they're, they're mad at him for not wearing a mask now. Shouldn't you have been mad at him for not wearing when a mask he when he wasn't wearing the mask? Yeah, this is... This is... Uh, we're going to walk down a road that I don't want to walk down. So I'll just say Nate Burleson coming up next right here on Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett on Sportsnet Radio and TV. Sometimes the obvious isn't so obvious to some. Time now for Inside the Lines brought to you by Sports Interaction, Canada's odds maker 19 plus. Please play responsibly. Coming up week 12 in the National Football League, starting with the U.S. Thanksgiving Thanksgiving Day games. Got it good and since you understood. Now only two of them, Steelers and Ravens, move to Sunday with the COVID issues. First Thanksgiving Day game sees the Texans favored by three in Detroit against the Lions. Then it's the Cowboys field goal favorites over Washington. Winner takes the division lead at, of course, four and seven. Steelers favored by four over the Ravens on Sunday now. That might go up, considering what we have seen over the last little while. Bills five-and-a-half-point favorites at home to the Chargers. Big one in the AFC East. 
Colts favored by three and a half over the Titans. And Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, three and a half point favorites against Tom Brady and the Bucks. All right, we're going to get to Brady, and we have enough tough bleep to get to, given the Steelers and the Ravens. But I need to start positive today. Nate Burleson, our guy. First things first. What is the Thanksgiving spread at the Burleson's? Ooh. Now, hold on. I know it's less than ideal. You're okay. a hardworking man. If right. you have an ideal situation on Thanksgiving Thursday, what is the ideal spread? Okay, I, I definitely am busy. I'm working two jobs. I got my two shows, but, you know, this is first world problems. I'm just blessed to be working. But ideally, I'm going with the turkey, all right? Not too dry, though, because oftentimes people go with that turkey. You slice into that thing about a quarter of an inch, it looks good. You get deeper than that, then you're up there with the cotton mouth. And I can't have no turkey that is dry. I need that thing juicy, you know what I'm saying? Like, like them booties Sir Mix-a-Lot was rapping about. And I need some candied ham. Okay, the candy ham with the, with the pineapples and the cherries and the marinated all up in there. And then we get the greens with the mac and cheese. Um, I sound like uh, Shirley Caesar. Green bean, potatoes, potatoes, bones, mouth. I need a little bit of everything. And then to end it, I need some pecan pie or some peach cobbler. Okay, I love it. But, but there's a very divisive question. Mm-hmm. That is uh, going across both nations, United uh-huh. States, Canada, on mm-hmm. our different Thanksgivings. You mentioned that turkey, and it can be some dry. Sometimes it needs a little performing enhancing. <laughs> are, 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 you, are you the gravy guy, or are you cranberry sauce? Well, here's the thing. I like gravy on mashed potatoes, and that's like mm. just a, 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 a delicious meal that you can eat in, in the fall. It, it doesn't have to be just on Thanksgiving. So I'd rather be the guy that takes the seasonal cranberry and then add that to my plate, then the guy that takes the gravy and just put it all over the meal. Like, I, I get it. You want to add a little bit to it, but then it's, it turns into like a, a Thanksgiving goulash. No, no, no. Get you some cranberries. And, and not the store-bought in the can. Get like the, the cranberry chunks. Now, on a yearly, on a, on a daily basis, year-round, I'm not a cranberry guy. But something about Thanksgiving. You just got to add that cranberry. And you know what Kyle Brandt said on my show today? He said, I'm going to make Thanksgiving nachos. And I was like, ooh, that sounds pretty good. Get a little, little shredded turkey. You know what I'm saying? A little, a little cheese. You can add some of the other uh, sides. And then I was like, would you put the cranberry on the chip that has the turkey and the cheese on it? Uh, nah, I can't, I can't go that far. No? No. Nah, okay, Tim, let me far. ask you this. And, nah. and listen, you know, we are, we are in divisive times, okay? And this isn't, this isn't a question of race. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there any dish that you guys put raisins in um, in your family? It's a wonderful question. Because if you say potato now, salad, then we are really going to have to evaluate our let friendship. Me, let, me, let, me, let me say this. No, but I did marry a Persian woman. And, and I don't know if you know what the Iranians do with vegetables and stuff, cranberries, and Ooh. yeah, there's some flavor in there. Hey, and ev- okay. every once in a while, my white ass just says no. Okay, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Hey, you played for one of the. You played for the OG Thanksgiving team, yeah. the Detroit Lions. Did. Yeah. What do you think, like, what's Thanksgiving Day like there? And did you ever get any of the turkey legs that we saw 
people eating or come close to one of those turkey legs. Yeah, I remember John Madden just cutting into it with his hand <laughs> and then feeding it to the staff with his fingerprints all on the meat. Just imagine being an intern and not wanting to be fired and John Madden just feeding you with his hands. <laughs> like, uh, I don't want to eat it, John. I'm sorry. But not, <laughs> um, for me, Thanksgiving um, games are special because when you're in Detroit, you don't have that many primetime games. So um, you have an opportunity where the world is literally watching. And, it, and whether you're good or not, they are on their butts, on their couches, watching you. And it really gives you an opportunity to ball out, man. And I see you guys showing some highlights. And I loved it. I loved it because I didn't know what the future held. I, I didn't know if we were going to be in the playoffs. But I knew if I made a play, celebrate it. I knew my homeboys would tell me that they saw me. And that right there was special enough. But it, it's, it's funny, though, because you, you get to the game and you know to yourself, oh, a little reverse action. Look at yeah. young Nate with the young leg. Spin move. Uh-oh, I need to get down. See, I, that's when I had the old legs. They was catching up to me too fast. Um, but, but for real, though, it's, it's special because when we were in Detroit, all jokes aside, I remember giving the pregame speech. And, you know, Calvin's more reserved. Matt Stafford's like, I just want a ball. And the defensive guys, they always sat back. And they're like, Nate, do your thing. Dominic Rella, who was our center, he always was like, give me a Super Bowl speech. And I'm like, bro, every game? You, I've never even been to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Your expectations are too high. Um, but I would. I would come from the heart. And I remember one particular year, we were playing the Packers. And I was just thinking about the circumstances of Detroit, like going through bankruptcy, um, some of the areas in Detroit looking like a bomb went off, um, you know, crime rate, um, just areas that really just need like a – a figurative hug. And I remember talking to the guy. I was like, look, we're blessed, man. We're blessed. We wake up in a hotel, getting ready to play football, food on a table. And we got food when we go home. There's people that love this game, that love this team, that are struggling, struggling to keep the lights on, struggling to put clothes in the back, struggling to find a meal tonight. I was like, so we can give people the best Thanksgiving ever. I was like, forget about the, the millions in the bank or, or, or the, the, the name on the back of your jersey. For a split second, just think about that. This Thanksgiving can be the most memorable Thanksgiving for people in Detroit. If we win, if we go out there and kick some ass. I was like, so for, for one game, let's do it for the people that we don't get to see, that we know need us. And we beat Greenback. And it was, it was one of those memorable moments, man. And I, I got done, and I was breaking it up. And I, I looked around, and guys had water in their eyes, and one of my homeboys looked at me and just gave me that nod, like that one was it. And, um, you know, it's funny, man. The, the times that I talked to my team and it resonated the most had nothing to do with football, which is the great thing about football. Yeah. It's funny because I'm ready to play some football right now. Like, can I get go. some shoulder pads, a helmet, let's go. Like, family on three, one, two, three, family. Like, I'm ready. <laughs> um, it's funny because I'm, I'm only allowed to, like, ask one question that will totally derail the show. So I'm going to okay. use that now. And I was going to ask you, like, Detroit, why did they sign 18 centers? Because you're a baller. But I'm not going to ask you about the Pistons. I'm going to ask you about that room because uh, you were blessed to have a foot action in the back yeah. of your shot. Uh, but I know it wasn't always like that. We had Fred Van Vliet on the show yesterday. Mr. Bet on Yourself. He's a baller. I want, I want Nate's Bet on Yourself story. What in life were you like, yeah, I'm bet. I'm betting on myself to get you to the place where you were in that room having that speech with those guys? When I was in high school, I played all three sports. I never won a team championship. I'm very driven by um, team success. I mean, when you listen to me talk, it's, it's team over everything when it comes to me. And then I got to college, and 
the University of Nevada, we just we weren't that good. We didn't make it to a bowl game. Um, I believe my record was two and seven, three and eight, and then maybe like five and six. Um, and I remember every year there was a team, a big school that was recruiting me. There was a team saying, hey, Nate, we, we want you to come to our school. We're, we're a bigger school. You'll have more exposure and you'll play in a bowl game. And I got that, 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 that offer every single season. And I remember each year saying, Nah, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay with the team that, that, that gave me an opportunity to. So it wasn't that I bet on myself in the sense that I knew I was gonna make it and be a, a, a football player and, and go into TV. I just knew the worst case scenario is that I enjoy the the ride with my family. The best case scenario is that I create a brotherhood and a bond for riding with the people that are the most true to me. So I think that's the biggest lesson. You know, I, I, I never think about the circumstances. It's more about the journey. So college for me was a learning lesson. I didn't have success. I had individual success. I was All-American, led the league. I led the country in catches, 138 catches. And I think back now, and it's ridiculous because those, those are wild numbers. But I would trade all that in for a bull ring. I'm talking about a University of Nevada bull ring. Like the ones where they hand out sweatsuits, a bootleg watch, and a, a walk. <laughs> like I, I would trade it all in for that. So I, I, I didn't bet on myself. I just, I like to bet on my family. And by family, I mean whoever it is that I rock with. Tim and Sid, of course, UD. Like, this is, this is all family. So if somebody else gave me an offer, I don't care if it was a Brazilian sports show. And they were like, <laughs> you know what? We got female hosts, and they are way more handsome than Tim and Sid. I'm like, you know what? The visuals might be great. Aesthetically, I might be pleased. But that ain't family. <laughs> I appreciate that. Nate, Okay, so about most, like most seven... shows are more handsome than ours. I'll be honest. <laughs> well, they they, yeah, they all are. That, that's the only reason yeah. why I'm here is to up the handsome factor. I see. Uh, <laughs> Seventy-five seconds ago, you had me ready to be a wedge breaker, just running through a wall. Now, like right. I'm tearing up. Like this is what you do to me. This is what you do to me. I, I just I, I try to bring it out of you, bro. I mean, you know, you already got the Morris chestnut look. I just trying to make sure that you know you connect to the the inner self. You know what I mean? Yeah. Might need a haircut, but whatever. Uh, so we got, we got, we had three games. We got okay. two games now because of the COVID situation in Baltimore, and not everyone is pleased. In fact, a guy you know pretty well. Shout out Seventeen Weeks Pod, uh, Eric Ebron, a tight end with the Steelers, uh, went on Twitter and said, "I'm not going to lie, NFL, this is bull poop." Except he did not say poop. Right. Uh, the Steelers have had to deal with it and played Sam Fram played a game with half the team. And now we're hearing Ravens and Steelers are going to play Sunday at one fifteen on NBC. Is this indeed, as Mr. Ebron put it, bull poop. I love Eric Ebron. That's my dog. I look at him like a little big brother. Uh, I hear where he's coming from because he's in the middle of it. And, and what it seems like is they're stacking up all of these things to derail the Steelers season, which they're having an unbelievable year, but, just don't be too insensitive to the bigger picture. And I know Eric is hearing it from everybody. I was looking at some of the comments. And people are quick to talk about, you know, his time in Detroit. And, oh, man, you used to drop football. Man, Eric's having a good season. Let's not bring up football. Let's not take no low blows. You could say, and I could say, and I, I could holler at Eric, shoot him a text and be like, look, you know, you saying that the game is moved is kind of messing up your flow and it's BS. Maybe it is in any other year. But 2020 is just different. So I think we all have these frustrations that we can voice on a daily. Like literally wake up from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, we can complain once every two minutes. But 
I think most of us just choose not to because in the situation that we're in and the situation that ball players are in for sure, a lot of it is first world problems. So the game has moved a few days. You're playing on Sunday. You're still playing football. Go ahead and ball out and do what you do. You're the best team in the NFL. So if, if the Ravens have to deal with the same circumstances, then so be it. Tim, you mentioned ball play, but I thought you were going to talk about the New York Jets and their <laughs> offense, their, their entire organization. Nate, but m- more likely, yeah, the, the Steelers run the table and go 16-0, or the Jets run the table and win the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes and go 0-16. Man, I, I always thought that teams never tank. Even when they're tanking, I used to think, like, man, it's just they're just too much grit involved in that huddle, and players have too much pride. Even if the coach is like, Listen, we don't want to win today. There's going to be that one player that's like, yo, if I catch this fade route, I'm scoring because my mama watches. But I honestly do feel like the, the Jets might be low-key kind of packing it in. And I feel like on the flip side, Mike Tomlin, who has already become a young legend of a coach, um, never has had a losing season. He should be a coach of the year, um, and he should have been considered that before. You know, if you think about what Tomlin has on the line one the momentum of his players and mentally staying focused on that same kind of like connectivity between games like we just want to dominate we just want to dominate we just, you want your team to always think about that and never drop that ball metaphorically um so I've, I've i've always i've always felt like teams that that tell their tell their their coaches that tell their teams to pull off the, the gas those are usually the teams that don't finish strong so i, I do believe tomlin is going to motivate these guys to go 16 and 0 Maybe because this team is special and they are that good, but also that would be one hell of a feather in the cap of Mike Tomlin, right? And just given the circumstances, not just being a young coach who came in after Bill Cowher, but also an African-American coach. Now you are the second team to ever do it led by a black coach. So I guess I would say the Steelers to go 16-0. Be crazy, especially after last season, where you're thinking when Minka Fitzpatrick gets picked up. I, I, like, How about that? Oh my goodness! I, I thought that? that they should have rebuilt, and here they are. Like I'm gonna be honest, I'll take the L on that one. I thought maybe they should have been rebuilding at that point, but you here know, it's crazy. Are. I was right there with you. I was sitting yeah. there, and I, I think I said it a few times over the summer. I was like, "There's no way Big Ben's gonna be as good as you think he is." Yeah. I mean, this dude is—he's—he's a—he's a, a bigger, bigger QB. He has a, a throwing arm injury. Um, and on top of that, there's no AB. There's no Le'Veon. It's, it's over. Like, let's just – they had a good run. And, and they'll rebuild in a couple of years. Mike Tomlin's a good coach. Credit to Mike Tomlin for, like, batting down the hatches and being like, yo, yo, I get it. Le'Veon's gone. He was the best in the game. Yo, yo, I get it. Antonio Brown is gone. He was the best in the game. Yo, yo, I get it. We got a whole bunch of mysteries surrounding our team. And, and guess what? The one that I constantly question, I even said this to Juju Smith-Schuster in his face. I said, um, you know, a lot of people are questioning whether this offense can have any type of go without Antonio Brown. And they're looking for you to step up and prove that you can be that guy without AB. And he's like, I'm ready. I'm ready. And not only has he proved that he's ready, but his unselfish attitude has helped guys like Deontay Johnson, James Washington, and Chase Claypool. Oh, my goodness. Chase Chase Claypool is about to make the Pro Bowl. And he might mess around and – and get on another heater, because he's already been on one this year, he messed around to get four or five more TDs. I'm calling for him to be all pro. And if he isn't, I'm going to be yelling that he's, he got robbed. Uh, we always run out of time with Nate Burleson because we like just talking with him. So i gotta, I, fit, I got to fit one more in yeah. here because Donovan and I didn't get a crack at the Monday nighter just because of the way yesterday's show went. 
And I wonder, Nate, if we're not starting to see why Tom Brady left New England. Like, not enough weapons left there, so he goes. And perhaps why New England let him go, because he can't make enough of the throws. And I know that the road Mm. is littered with people who have bet against Tom Brady. Mm. But after Monday night, did we get a vision into the future of Tom can't throw it deep anymore, so force him to do it? Yeah, what, what do celebrities say when they're asked about their breakups? Amicably? Is that, is that the Amicably. right pronunciation? <laughs> um, Consciously they, uncoupling? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it was a, a, a decision that we both came to, and I, I felt like it was best of us, but we wished each other well. <laughs> I, you know, we, we all wanted to take a side. We all wanted to say, well, well what, was, it, was it Bill Belichick doing what they do and letting go of a player before they're washed up? Or was it Tom saying, <laughs> big secret, guys, I've been the dude this whole time. You guys have been wanting to credit this system, but I'm the man. And maybe it's it's a combination of both. You know, maybe they, they both had that that so raven moment where they looked into the future and was like, ah, that's a little shaky, fam. And, and I, I do believe Monday night was a little bit of a window into some of the inconsistencies we saw last year from Tom in Tampa. I mean, Tom with the New England and some that we're seeing this year. But with that said, I'm not willing to write him off. Because it's not about his arm going out or not being able to make the throws. They just weren't on point. So I do think Tom's going to bounce back. It's rare that he has two bad games in a row. The, the only thing that makes you worry if you're a Tampa Bay fan or you were betting on Tampa Bay to win and be in a Super Bowl on Tampa Bay is that time is running out for you to correct these small things. So if this continues for a couple of weeks, I always said in November and December, you are who you're going to be in January. So we'll see who they turn into. I love it. Listen, 100,000 people are watching us right now. About 100,000? Yeah, 100,000. About 1,000 of them understood the That's So Raven reference, but they all love you for it. They all love that's you for it. That's what I'm talking it. about. It's for that 1,000. That's, that's what I do it for, for the 1,000. I couldn't get to the chorus in time. I could not get to the chorus in time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you watch oh, That's So Raven? Hell no. I'm aware of it because of the culture. <laughs> but you think I was allotting 30 to 60 minutes of my life to watch it? No. Can you, can you recite the chorus of the song, That's So Raven? I, I cannot. I cannot. Because you, right. you know what? show came around at the same time-ish that I was uh, I was addicted to. Hang time, running together. Mark Put it in on the line. Who is Hang it? time. Mark? Oh, you, Hanging Mr. with Mr. Cooper? Uh, yeah, another great show. Um, I, 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 I oh, that's watch, a different uh, thing. That's oh, that's a different thing. I'm sorry. I'm confusing I not the that's two. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wonder where those our version now of those shows are. Like, what kids now have like it's probably something that i'm not seeing because of the the netflix algorithm because i'm not that age but yeah let us know (laughs) keep us on game right all right we're taking a break when we come back uh one of the new raptor deals chris boucher if you thought freddie van vliet's story was pretty good how about chris boucher's story we will discuss that and close out the show on this edition of tim and sid sportsnet radio and tv This is Tim and Sid featuring Donovan Bennett. 
for this Wednesday, November 25. By the way, I just saw Sportsnet tweet out your against the spread week 12 picks with Jeff Lowe. Are you, are, you're nine games over 500 against the spread. That's pretty impressive, my dude. You know what? I've actually had a, a terrible stretch in the last couple of weeks. I was I was much I was doing much better. I was riding high for a while, and now I'm I'm coming slowly back to earth. But thank you, I, I appreciate that. Like nine games above. I know it's been eleven weeks now, but that's still real. Nine games above five hundred. Uh, do the juice calculations. Ah, you're about even. All right. Um, one day after Fred Van Vliet, uh, the Raptors' uh, other undrafted success story. Chris Boucher officially signed his reported two-year, $13.5 million deal. It has been quite the journey for the 27-year-old from Montreal who just over 10 years ago was a high school dropout, um, homeless, working as a dishwasher and part-time cook at a Saint Hubert in Montreal. But Boucher says making a seven-figure salary won't change his mindset. I feel like we still got the same goal. Um, I don't think it really changed me as a person. I think, um, you know, two of the years I realized, you know, who I was and the people that I needed to be around. When it comes to that, I think money won't change that. I think um, it definitely is going to help me with my family. Um, I'm trying to take my mom. Uh, like I said, I don't want my mom to work no more. So that's definitely one thing I'm trying, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to take care of. And beside that, I think um, just trying to keep the love basketball, trying to get better, um, not get too comfortable, um, learn from my mistakes, and, you know, stay stay walking a straight line. Okay, I love it. And I'm here for it. I'm down for it. It sounded a lot like Fred Van Vliet, who we talked to yesterday. But, Chris, you're wearing a Fendi shirt. Your <laughs> earrings are bigger than Sid's cufflinks. Like, so some things clearly have changed, yeah. as they should. Like, like, enjoy the spoils of your hard work. It doesn't mean you're not going to continue to work. But, but I know when you were roaming the streets of La Belle Provence. I'm, I mean, quite frankly, I don't know. But I suspect you weren't wa- rocking Fendi at that time. But, but shout out to, to, to Montreal. Whether it's Kareem Anne or Chris Boucher or Ken Birch or Lou Dort. Um, you know, the, that province is really putting on for basketball in a big way. And, and I, I was there a couple weeks ago, you know, covering Cremene and everything that I was hearing and seeing as I saw guys work out is the cupboard is not bare. There's more coming. And whether it's high level NCAA or hopefully eventually uh, the NBA, um, you know, that province is producing players. It's not just the GTA. It's not just Ontario. It's not just BC. But, but, but today, Chris Boucher gets his flowers, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, what are your expectations for him? Because for me, the, those numbers suggest that he's going to get legit minutes to go along with a legit paycheck. And given that, I mean, Alex Len and Aaron Baines, it, it'll probably be a competition. But you would assume that Boucher will get the chance to play real minutes and not just when someone's hurt. Yeah, and when he did get minutes, he was not afraid to let it fly. The slim duck <laughs> was, was not shy. That's no. for sure. So he's going to make the most of however many minutes he gets. I mean, I was on a, a, a text group with a, a bunch of buddies, and, and we were talking about, well, why not? 
why can't Chris Boucher take a Pascal Siakam like leap from a couple years ago? Like not we're not talking about being the best player the in game one of the but... NBA Finals or starting the All Star game, but take that leap where he's like he's in you know a periphery rotation guy. Oh, he's he's running the second unit with the bench mob. He's a big big impact player. I think that's in Chris Boucher's game, and now's the time. He's twenty seven. Like, I know we haven't seen him at a high level for a while, but he was in college for a bit, was in the G League for a bit. Like, this is going to be his, his athletic prime. And he got money that's around the same level of some more established centers in the league. So, so certainly they're making a financial investment. I think if you're looking for internal growth on this team, he's certainly one person. I think, you know, obviously OG is the other, but, but I, I'm expecting big, big things. What about you? I don't know about big, big things, but I think that the Raptors' big, big ability tings. to, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe Tings would be a better representation uh, of one, uh, my youth, and two, where Boucher will be. But I, I think, I think the draft and develop or sign and develop for the Raptors is going to be tested even more over the next little while. Because when you're the team that consistently drafts in the lower part of the first round, that's what's tested. And every step that I've seen Chris Boucher take as a member of the Toronto Raptors has shown me growth. And I won't be surprised when he's the next guy making that step. I don't know if it's, you know, uh, second year Pascal Siakam or what it'll end up being, but... I'm not surprised anymore when the draft when the Raptors um, end up developing. In fact, I saw John Hollinger. I saw all of the like all of the inside NBA guys who want to talk about where um, players can help themselves and improve their teams. All of them have just given now their support to whatever the Raptors are doing. And it's it's a testament, one, to what the Raptors are doing, and two, to how that field kind of shifts and adapts. And we had Freddie on yesterday talking about how no one was using him as the draft comparable, and now they're using him as a draft comparable. How did he get there? Hard work, development, help. Like, all of these things have to go into it. But I think mindset is a, a lot of it, and you see that with Boucher. Yeah, no doubt. Don't sleep on O'Shea Brissett either. He could take a step to really help this club as well. Speaking of Canadians, watch them at Orangeville Prep. Uh, all right, that's it for us. Uh, we are done for the day. Coming up next, uh, Sportsnet tonight on the radio side of things. You can watch the Leafs Islanders from 1978 on Sportsnet Plays of the Month on Sportsnet 360 and the Grand Slam of Curling on Sportsnet 1. So we got you covered, whatever your taste may be. And we always got you covered here on Tim and Sid. Join us again tomorrow as Donovan sits in for Six Arrow. But in the meantime, remember, kids. Wash your hands, wash your hands, and wash your hands. It's important, especially now. Washing your hands, washing your hands.